page 694, Matthew 16, 13 to 28. Do you ever feel discouraged? Maybe because, maybe because you have goals and reaching those goals seems so far away. Maybe because you care deeply about something and so many people around you don't seem to care. Maybe because you love Jesus and you want others to love him too, but instead of turning to him, your friends and neighbors in this country seem to be going from bad to worse. I get discouraged when I turn in, tune into the news and I'm reminded of how many problems there are in the world and how anti-Jesus the opinion leaders in this country seem to be. Well, today's pace, uh, passage takes place in the face of such discouragement. Jesus has come bringing God's message of love and God's kingdom, God's new world order to the world. And, and God's people um, have by and large rejected him. In particular, Israel's leaders uh, and teachers and, and influencers, the Pharisees and Sadducees have rejected Jesus and in so doing they've rejected God. Jesus' mission, it seems, has hit a dead end at this point as you read the gospel story. And into this context, in today's passage, we see how Jesus speaks and acts. And so we, when we get discouraged, would do well to remember what Jesus says and does here. In fact, I'll put it more strongly than to say we would do well to remember because today's passage is the turning point in the story of Jesus. It's absolutely fundamental and central to knowing who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Fail to take this passage to heart and your religion is undoubtedly skewed and distorted and perhaps even worthless. So let's take a look at this important story. In our text last Sunday, back in Matthew 12, we saw that conflict was intensifying between Jesus and the Pharisees. It was about the Sabbath, if you'll remember. And if you continue reading the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 12 up through chapter 16, where we'll be today, you'll see that this conflict builds and builds until Jesus finally tells his disciples to break ties with the Pharisees. That happens in Matthew 15, 14. And he warns them against the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16, 11, right before our passage. And so immediately after that, today's story takes place. Now let me put these developments into perspective. This would be as if a new guy comes to your church and uh, you've been attending your church for years, you love it, and, and this new guy starts a small group and you join it. You love the small group because this guy really knows God and he helps you to know God too. And God blesses your group and it's growing. But as time goes on, your leader's unique teaching comes into conflict with that of the pastor and the elders of your church. Finally, the differences become intractable. And your small group leader tells you to break ties with your church's leadership and to leave your church with him. How would you feel? You might feel a whole host of emotions. Discouragement, anger, being torn in two different directions, insecurity, confusion, hope. Well, this is where Jesus' disciples are at in today's story. 
And as we begin in verse 13, Jesus takes them from Israel far up north to the border to a very pagan city called Caesarea Philippi. And there they can catch their breath and they can think things through. Jesus has rejected the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Israel's leadership, and they have rejected him. The common people, many of them at least, continue to flock to Jesus, but his ministry can only expand so much with, with, the, um, with Israel's leaders standing in the way, as they are. Something has to change. And where do the disciples stand in all of this? So Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, they reply, and others Elijah or or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All of these men that they mention were prophets and the sort of prophets who were anticipated to come near the end of history to prepare the way for the end of time when God's Messiah would come to restore all things and to usher in God's eternal kingdom. And people sensed that the end times were closing in, many of them at least did, and and that uh, like John the Baptist, Jesus was, was an important part of what God was doing. But notice at this point, people by and large didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, the final climactic figure in history. Jesus was great. Jesus was wonderful. Jesus was, was, or God was clearly at work in Jesus so that uh, for many people, as far as they were concerned, um, Jesus was at least a prophet. But somehow, Jesus must not have struck them as very royal or very Messiah-like. Interesting. Well, Jesus continues asking his disciples directly now, but who do you say that I am? And at this point, Peter speaks up, perhaps speaking for many of the other disciples. You are the Christ, he says, if you're translating it in Greek. If you're translating it in Hebrew, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the end time figure, the great king sent from God to restore all things and to usher in the end of the age and to inaugurate the new creation. More than that, you are the son of the true living God sent from God himself in love to to represent God, to, to accomplish God's mission on earth. Wow, what a confession. What an insight. What a hope in the face of discouragement. And on this hinge, the whole gospel story suddenly turns now in a new in a startling direction. And packed into these next few verses that we're looking at this morning are some of the most important words in the gospel, without which we can't understand Jesus or the gospel story or what it means to be a Christian or what the church is. In these verses, Jesus does three things. First, he reveals who he is and what he's come to do. Second, Having called his followers to leave Israel's leaders, Jesus now forms or founds a new community, a new people to be God's people, and he calls it his church. And then third, Jesus teaches us who and what this church is to be. 
And in this wonderful new development, we find great encouragement. I want to work through this passage by pointing out five lessons that Jesus teaches us here about what his church, the new communities that he's forming, is to be. Ready? Five lessons. First, (laughs) what? (laughs) First, the church is the community of those who say that Jesus is our king. Jesus asks his disciples, who do other people say I am? Then he asks, but who do you say that I am? Now, which of those questions is easier to answer? It's easier to answer the first question, right? I mean, everyone on the street has an opinion about who Jesus is. That's not hard to to figure out. Some people say he's a great moral teacher, other that he's an enlightened guru, still others that he's a holy prophet, etc., etc., Our church has a statement of beliefs about who Jesus is. If you go on our website, you can read. It says in part, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. He died on the cross as our substitute and rose bodily from the dead. Most of us probably hear that and we nod in agreement. But the real question is, who do you say Jesus is? Not What do people on the street say? Not even what does some statement of our church say? But you, personally. I'm not talking about intellectually having an opinion in some semi-detached theological sense. I'm talking about what you believe in your heart of hearts. What you believe when you get up every morning. There was a time in my life when I had to decide for myself who another person was in my life. She's now my wife, Anne, but she wasn't my wife at that time. She was someone who I thought I loved and I wasn't sure I wanted to live without. And so I had to figure out what that meant for me and for her. And the answer to that question changed everything. It's no different with Jesus. Peter figured out who he thought Jesus was, the Messiah, the Christ, the the long-awaited descendant of David who would reestablish the Davidic dynasty and, and lead Israel in a movement of liberation from Rome and restore the pride and the honor and the prosperity of God's people. But more than that, the Messiah would extend God's reign to the whole earth, bringing peace on earth as we remember at Christmas time, a new eternal age of blessedness. The Messiah wasn't just a prophet who prepared the way. The Messiah was the long-anticipated one who would change all things. To believe that Jesus was the Messiah changed everything. It had vast implications for the disciples' lives. If Jesus was merely a moral teacher, then they might glean some wisdom and some guidance from his instruction. If Jesus was a prophet, they might hear God's voice through his words. But if Jesus was the Messiah, then everything about their lives must change and give way before the reign of God's king. If Jesus was the Messiah, then he placed enormous demands on the lives and the loyalties of his followers. 
Just as my deciding who Anne was in my life radically altered the course of my life, so deciding who Jesus was radically altered the course of the disciples' life. Now granted, Jesus didn't turn out to be exactly the kind of Messiah they expected. But nevertheless, it remains true that deciding that Jesus is the great king will radically alter our lives as well. Ann and I are both firstborns, and, and that means that most often we both think that we're right. And that we know the best way to do something. Needless to say, this occasionally causes some friction between us. And when we were first married, one place that this friction came out was in the car. I'd be driving, but Anne would think I should listen to her ideas about the best ways to get places. But I'd feel quite strongly that she should keep her opinions to herself, thank you very much, and let me do the driving. Uh, I'd say to Anne, Anne, I did get places before I knew you. <laughs> A few times our disagreements on these matters reached the point where I said, fine, if you think you know best, then I'll slide over and I'll let you drive. Has anyone else said that to their spouse? <laughs> yeah, okay. We're not the only ones. Well, I have this conversation with Jesus, too. From time to time, we disagree about how I'm living my life. And Jesus is being a backseat driver, and he's trying to tell me how to do things. And I know that he's the boss, and here's where the analogy with Ann begins to break down. <laughs> I know Jesus is the boss. And so I should listen to Jesus' directions, and I should go where Jesus wants me to go. But as the driver, I still reserve the right to disregard his directions when I want to and to go my own way. And I've come to realize that this scenario is wrong. Because even if I'm doing a pretty good job of listening to Jesus' directions, I'm still the one in the driver's seat. Which means I still haven't really figured out who I say Jesus is. At least I certainly haven't decided that he's the Messiah, the king. You see, kings don't sit in the passenger seat and navigate. Kings drive. Or more likely they have a chauffeur and they tell that chauffeur exactly where to go and the chauffeur goes there. So who's driving in your life? Are you driving still? Or have you recognized that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the great King? The church is the community of those who say, Jesus is our King. Now the encouraging part of this is that it means we don't have to be in control. We don't have to hold it all together or figure it all out. We don't have to solve all the world's problems or even our own. We have a king and we believe that the world has a king, someone with broad enough shoulders to take all of our concerns. We can rest. We can enjoy peace under the reign of the Messiah, the great king. Second lesson about the church in the story 
is that the church is a community built by God. We see this lesson reiterated twice in our passage. First in verse 17, Jesus replies to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Most people looked at Jesus and they saw John the Baptist or they saw Elijah or or they saw a prophet or they saw a dangerous imposter. But Peter looked at Jesus and saw the great king. And Jesus replies to Peter, Peter, you didn't figure this out by yourself. God revealed it to you. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 11. No one knows the Son except the Father. Only the Father knows who Jesus really is because who Jesus is is too out of the box, too extraordinary, too surprising, too scandalous for any person to ever imagine or figure out on their own. We only get it. We only get who Jesus is when God reveals it to us. When God turns on the light bulb, so to speak. Second uh, time that this lesson that God builds his church is reiterated in this passage is in verse 18 where Jesus continues. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Never mind that the leaders of Israel and God's people as an official entity had rejected their Messiah. Jesus was going to build a new people of God. He was going to form a new community to take the place of the old. Notice Jesus, the Messiah, was going to build it, and it was going to belong to him. I will build my church, Jesus says. Jesus built it. Not Peter, though he was the rock. Not our elders, not our pastor. Not Billy Graham, not any celebrity preacher. Not any of us, but Jesus himself. Look around you. Do you see the other people in this room? They are proof that God the Father and God the Son are at work. Showing people who Jesus really is and building them together into the Messiah's church. Turn to someone next to you and say, God is at work. Amen. Statistically, statisticians tell us there are 2 billion Christians in the world today. 2 billion. Now, I don't know how many of those are Christians in name only, but however many of those 2 billion can actually say with Peter, Jesus is my king. Those people can say that because God has been building his church. And if CBC is going to go on another 30 or 40 years, if we're going to grow from, uh, from the size we are now to 150 or 200 or, or whatever, it will be because God is building his church. It will be because God is living and active here and, and in the community around us, enabling people to see Jesus for who he is and adding them to his church. This is a relief for us and an encouragement 
It's also a challenge because, of course, God involves us and he enlists our help. And so we have something to say about whether God does his work here or whether he finds another church to use. This leads us to the third lesson about the church from this passage, and that is that while God builds his church, we get to help. We get to help. Peter got a primary role in this. Jesus says to him, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now the Roman Catholics take this passage to mean that the Pope has the keys to the kingdom. The Pope got them from the last Pope, who got them from the Pope before him, and so on, all the way back to Peter, who got them originally. Most other Christians hold that while Peter had a special and a foundational role in the establishment of Jesus' church, all believers get to help, too. All you have to do to see this is to keep reading in Matthew down to uh, chapter 18, verse 18, where Jesus tells the whole church what he told to Peter. He, he says, whatever you, plural now, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The same thing he said to Peter, he now says to the church. Let's take a minute to consider what this means this business about the keys and binding and loosing, because it will help us to see what our role is as Jesus' helpers. What are keys used for? Well, they're, they're used to unlock doors and gates to let people in and to lock doors and gates to keep people out. And we see Peter doing this in the book of Acts. Peter preaches the gospel to the Jewish people and, and, and many repent and believe and Peter invites them to be baptized. He welcomes them into God's kingdom. A little later, an evangelist named Philip takes the gospel down to Samaria and there's a good response there. So what do the apostles do? Well, they send Peter and John with him down uh, to check it out. And Peter sees that it's the real deal. And so he takes out his keys and, and he unlocks the gate and he welcomes the Samaritans into, his kingdom, into God's kingdom. A little later in Acts, God uses Peter to bring Gentiles into the kingdom as well. Peter, by, by preaching about Jesus and by welcoming those who respond to the message into the growing church, is opening the gates of the kingdom. He also shuts the gates. When Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. When Simon the sorcerer tries to buy the gift of giving the Holy Spirit with money. When the Jewish leaders continue to refuse to repent and to follow the Christ. Peter is there to rebuke them and to warn them of the judgment that awaits. That's what it means to bind and loose. This was uh, a term that the rabbis used. To, to bind means to forbid, to close the gates. To loose means to permit, to open the gates. Isn't it amazing that God would allow human beings to play a role in deciding such important matters? But God does. 
And we today, like Peter and like the other apostles, get the huge privilege of watching the Father reveal the Son to people, just like God did for us. We get the huge privilege of watching Jesus build his church. And more than watch, we get to help. We get to tell people about Jesus. And when they believe, we get to welcome them in. And when they refuse, we get to warn them that they're shutting themselves out. What a privilege. What a responsibility. But the pressure is not on us to make people believe. Only the Father can reveal the Son. Only the Son can build His church. The fact that we get to help God build His church then leads to a fourth lesson, which is that the church is prone from time to time to defect to the enemy. If you keep reading down to verses 21 to 23, Jesus begins to tell the disciples about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die there. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, no way, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of human beings. One minute Peter can be the rock on whom Jesus will build his church. And the next, he can be a stumbling block speaking the very words of Satan. And the same is true of us. How quickly we can go from foundation block to stumbling block. Commentator Dale Bruner comments, the church has two natures, God used and devil used. And unfortunately, history has played that out. Peter, one second, can have an amazing God inspiration. And the next, he can be the mouthpiece of the devil. And we're all that way. And so Bruner insightfully warns us. He says, the disciple must constantly relearn the hard art of following Jesus. It is not learned all at once. And prior inspirations... Do not guarantee later ones. Even the most godly, he says, the most godly mature Christians can speak devilish thoughts. And so Matthew Henry advises, we must not regard who speaks so much as what is spoken. We're all, even the most godly of us, prone from time to time to defect to the enemy. This leads to our fifth and last lesson about the church, and that is that the church is to be shaped by the cross. That's where Peter messes up. He messes up when Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying. Because messiahs don't suffer and die. Messiahs conquer. They, they reign victoriously. Messiahs are winners, not losers. That's what every good Bible-believing Jew knew to be true. As sure as the sky is blue and pigs don't fly. Messiahs win, they don't lose. But, but Jesus insists that this view 
was actually the mentality of the devil. What a damning indictment on the views of God's people. And we'd be better careful to consider if the shoe still fits today. If you think back to Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which we looked at some weeks back, it's the same viewpoint. Jesus, build your church through your power. Without pain, avoid the pain, avoid the struggle. Do it without the cross. Do it without love, sacrificial love. Be a winner. You don't have to go your father's appointed road of suffering and self-sacrifice. And the church has been falling for this temptation ever since. We grasp at money. We grasp at popularity and influence, connections. We grasp at political power or, or media influence. And when we do, when we depend on these things, instead of on the way of the cross, we're siding with the devil. But Jesus says, I will build my church. And the way I will build it will be through a cross. And whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I am the Messiah, Jesus says. And I will exercise my kingship. I will establish my kingdom by dying on a cross and then by being raised to life again. And if you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of my church that I'm building, then you must lay down your lives too. Betting on the fact that if you give up your life in love, you'll find the same powerful resurrection life that I'm going to experience. It's only if that is our attitude toward our coworker, our neighbor, our family members, that we are fit to wield the keys and to help Jesus in his kingdom work. I am the Messiah, Jesus says, and that's how we do things in my kingdom. We win by losing. We succeed by seemingly failing. We gain by giving up. We find life by dying to ourselves in love. Anything else is of the devil. Back in Matthew 11, Jesus invited us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is actually light. And you will find rest for your souls. Are you feeling discouraged? Jesus offers us encouragement. It's not the encouragement we expected. So the question for each of us now is, 
Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. I want to invite each one of us to talk to Jesus and to fill in the blank of this sentence as best you can. Jesus, you are my blank. And maybe you can say that quickly with conviction or, or maybe that opens up some wrestling. But take a minute to talk to Jesus. Jesus, you are my Jesus, at the very center of your story, of your ministry, stands this turning point where you reveal to us that to be the Messiah means to take up the way of the cross. That this is the way your kingdom comes, that this is the way your church is built. And as your helpers, you invite us to model, to imitate you, and to walk this way too. You promise us that this is the way to life, the way to resurrection power, the way to rest and to peace. And that word, as it did for Peter and the first disciples, goes against everything in this world that we know to be true. And yet your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. And I pray as you did for Peter and the disciples, that you will open our eyes and hearts to take this gamble and to experience life, to experience the resurrection like we never before thought possible. And so to know your peace, your encouragement, and true life. Amen.